You're listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochchurch.sg. The title of this message is The Mission of Jesus because you need to understand that Jesus, when he came to earth, received a mission from the Father. Now, Jesus did not always know exactly what had to be done. Jesus represents us in the sense that he's the firstborn among many brothers. When he came from heaven, he was aware of his divine identity, if you would, but was not really knowing clearly everything, I believe, this is my opinion. Now, some people believe that he walked around with God consciousness constantly and remembered clearly all things. I don't think it was so much like that. I think when he was in his human form, because those conscious thoughts of eternity would have to be connected to the divine nature of divinity where it says clearly in Philippians chapter 2 that he self-emptied himself of his divine nature. That he emptied that so that he could identify with humans. Hebrews says that he could be tempted just like we were tempted and go through all those things so that we would have a high priest that is able to sympathize with what we experience in life. So here on earth he came if you would like a, a uh, someone coming on a fact-finding mission about how can we help the people of earth. Like making a plan when he came down. Of course he understood that he was to be the sacrifice. Of course he understood. But if you try to find what we call the church today, even the outplay of what you see in the book of Acts, and then described in detail by the letters of Paul, you will not find clear prophecies in the Old Testament describing what we call the church. And so that caught my attention. I started thinking, well, why isn't there, you know, in Isaiah, why doesn't it say, and there will be groups of people gathered, and there will be, of course, the group of 12, and uh, the Lord Emmanuel will train those people, and then they will have little local groups. And, you know, it seemed like it could have been more clearly articulated in the Old Testament. But it was not because I truly believe, and this is the revelation I got when I was in Batam, that this came to Jesus while he was here. That the church, the idea of the church, the conception of the church was a response from Jesus concerning the people of earth. And now, of course, we know we have a great commission in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, here we take this great commission, as it is here in Matthew 28 and also Mark 16, and we virtually memorize it. We have it, and we've, we've written it down on placards and on plates and towels, and you know, we have this and understand this passage. Many of you may have it underlined in your Bibles or marked out, and that's good because it is our great commission, but... What led Jesus to come up with this conclusion? What led Jesus to come up with all of the conclusions that he came up with? And this is really what this message is about. What Jesus saw when he came down to earth and how this is relating to us. How we relate to the Lord. We relate to Jesus in a personal way where Jesus will reveal truth to us incrementally. And so we all grow um, step by step. And this is kind of a look at these passages that, that chronicle these seven layers, primarily the latter part of it, and the actual church planting will come from Acts chapter 
14. But here I want to start by looking at seven stages to fulfilling the apostolic. And really, that's the apostolic is the mission of Jesus. If you want to know the mission of Jesus, you need to understand the apostolic. Because he was sent by the Father. And then received the revelation of a plan, gave it to his disciples, and then sent them. And that's what apostelos means. It means to send. So that empowering, that motivation to send them came as a, I call it the romance that Jesus had with the people of earth. Because he came down to earth, he taught the kingdom, principles of the kingdom, but really it wasn't until later in Matthew chapter 9, toward the end, that a, that a, a very important passage says he was moved in such a way that caused him to respond by doing something. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So we're going to see seven stages to fulfill the apostolic. And the first one, number one, is, of course, meeting Jesus. And this is a redirected person in life, a redirection in life. It says, Matthew 4, 18, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake. And they were fishermen. Yeah, they were fishermen. That was their trade. That's what they did. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So here we see the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and also disciples of John the Baptist before this, which when they were with John the Baptist, it was not required that they no longer be fishermen. They could, in essence, like go to church with John, but yet go back to their jobs pretty regularly. And that is a lot of Christians will do that. We have op, op, um, obligations in this world, of course. We need to supply for our families. We need to take care of the needs that we have. And some people will, will have, find great opportunities within business, within different realms to impact this, this planet that way. But there are also those that are called apart. And concerning the apostolic and what God does, we see people that are redirected in life when they really meet Jesus. And this is exactly what we see here. Peter had a life, he had a profession uh, for quite some time when he meets Jesus. And this is really the first step to becoming useful, a useful tool in the hands of God, and that is to be redirected by God. Uh, everybody has some direction in which he or she is moving in life. And you ask, well, where did that direction come from? It was usually given to us either by our social surrounding, our family, maybe our mother and our father, uh, maybe aunts and uncles. Uh, in my case, I was given a direction by my aunts who were the most responsible people in my family. And I've talked a little bit about that, how they wanted me to work in, in their business that they had, which was actually hairdressing. And they had nice salon hair, skin and nails. I'm a trained esthetician. I can do hair, skin, nails, color, perms, everything. I know how to do it and do it well. But no, I'm not going to do it for you. Amen? <laughs> Only in the most dire cases, as I say. When I see someone's hair is a disaster. Only then will I say, look, you, you need help. It's like I see you and I become like the hairdressing Samaritan on the road. And I see that you've been, your hair has been beaten up and left for dead. Then maybe. But most people, this is a good place. In other countries where I worked, third world countries, the people had absolutely no means to take care of that. I did a lot. 
I did a lot of hair cutting. In fact, in a Bible school in northern Mexico, I was the personal hair cutter of about 350 people. And I, every day, all day long, I would cut hair. And it's one of the reasons why I learned Spanish really well, because it was a language school. And they were all Mexicans. And I was able to learn by cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting. Very interesting experience. But everybody has a direction. And at this point, Peter's a fisherman. So are the others with him. And they're there in Galilee doing this. But they had a purpose. Now, there are, of course, those who have no course, no purpose. The people who don't seem to really have something etched out about their future. Those people are actually more easily adaptable to the plan of God. Because they really don't have anything else. That's why third world countries are so ideal. The work I've done in India, the work I've done in um, Mexico in the 10 years I was there, so easy. If I, if I want to train a group of people, basically I just stick a sign on a door and I have a full school of people that didn't have anything better to do anyway. Because they don't have a lot of direction sometimes. That's why Jesus, as a way to tell us a wise course of action in doing church planning, he said, go to the poor. Because they're, they're not going to have a lot to stop them. The rich, he said, oh, it's harder for them to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so we have these issues where it's a lot more challenging. But poor people, they'll just do it. So for us here in Singapore, by the way, you're rich. If you're even in Singapore, you're amongst the global rich. It's a little more challenging for us to step out and do some of those things. But I do like the fact that, of course, Simon Peter was a disciple of John the Baptist, which means John was talking, teaching. He was there. He was listening. He was active in his faith already, waiting for the coming of Messiah. So, of course, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Well, Peter was like, well, John, it's been great, but I'm following the Lamb. And he said, it's okay, I must decrease if he can increase anyway, so go. He let him go. But that was all part of meeting Jesus. And that's what happens in the beginning. I remember when I met Jesus. I remember getting saved. I remember identifying with Christ had done for me. But in the beginning, I did not think a lot about what his mission was overall on earth. And I just was so glad to be saved. I was so glad to have my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I was so happy in the honeymoon of salvation that in this first stage, I, I met Jesus. My life was redirected in a spiritual sense to begin with, where I was raised in a certain religion and my mother had a certain idea. My grandmother had a certain idea about what we should believe, what we should do. And I fulfilled all the obligations of that religion. But when I met Jesus, it was a whole different thing. And I knew that now my spiritual redirection took place first. And I believe that's already where, John, where um, Peter is at this stage. He's, he's there with John the Baptist, and he's primed and ready. I was primed and ready by the Lord, but I didn't really get it until later on when I received the mission of Christ. And that is number two. Receiving the mission of Christ. We go to Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And then we're going to see 10 verses 1 and 5. I pieced it together for us to read cleanly through. Now Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now notice it says he went through all the towns and villages. That's a lot. And by the way, this is the ninth chapter. So he's got nine chapters of activity here. And this is already some time, year plus, 
into his earthly public ministry. So he's making his way around. He specifically, in fact, in another passage, in a couple of places in the Gospels, he says, that's why I'm here. He says, I have to go to another village because that's why I'm here. So his purpose, the reason for him being here was to go to every village he could go to. And as he was doing this, I believe it was like an infiltration of the people of earth for Jesus as God, representing heaven and the Father, came down to look at the people of earth and learn about their lives. Learn about what their feelings were. Remember, that's what Hebrews said, so that he could be sympathetic to our cause. And it was one thing for God, the system of the Old Testament law and all those things. And I know we think always that God is absolute wise and so therefore would certainly understand our feelings and our thoughts and our ideas but I think that he wanted to do it a little differently and become even more closely intertwined with us so that he could be our God and we could be his people. He had to come down to earth and live with us. You know you really don't know much about a man until you walk in his shoes for a couple of miles an old saying my mother used to say until you walk around in another man's shoes you don't understand him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And during that time that he was doing all this, of course, he's preaching the kingdom. That is, the principles of the kingdom from his heavenly perspective, which he had gained from his times of interaction through the Holy Spirit with the Father. Because he did no miracles, remember, before he was baptized in the Spirit. He did nothing supernatural at all. He was a normal guy. He wasn't going around raising little dead birds to life or anything like that. He was, I'm sure he was a good boy. I'm sure he did not have some of the natural inclinations of rebellion that many other children have. He must have been an ideal child. But then again, you can think, well, well, at the age of 12, he didn't exactly go with his family back after that trip. So that seems a bit rebellious. But no, he said, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? So he was coming of age and understanding that the age of reason, I think that's why God put him there that passage, that narrative about him at the age of 12 because it's when his mind was starting to click, come on, that he was discovering that I need to, this is me. This is what I identify with. These teachers, these guys were teaching the law, the word of God, and he wanted to learn as much as he could. This is not, I mean, I'm sure Joseph was a great um, uh, father in the place, or stepfather, but he was a carpenter. He was not a scribe or a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He was not a lawyer. He did not know the scriptures. And Jesus, I'm sure, was hungering deep inside when him, as the Word, made flesh. It was already in him. It just needed to come up and become a reality. And really, that didn't happen fully until he was baptized in water and came up and the Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And the Holy Spirit says immediately, I like to amplify it, it says that he was filled with and controlled by the Spirit and driven into the wilderness to be tempted. Because then now, the, it's like he came online is the way I imagine it. Now, he hears the commission. He knows the passage of the declaration, his manifesto, if you would, because that's the first thing you see him say in the church when he comes back out of the wilderness. He opens the scroll and he reads it to them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has anointed me to preach deliverance to the captives on through that whole passage from the 61st chapter of Isaiah. And I think that was his manifesto because he turned around and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, in your sight. And one gospel says they all marveled at him. Another gospel says they took him to an edge of a cliff and wanted to kill him. Because what he said was tantamount to blasphemy. But he, this is just as he's coming into 
His identity is an understanding. And I know this is a unique perspective of how Jesus operated. That's why it was a revelation to me when the Holy Spirit was speaking to me in Batam about this. Like, really clicked. Hmm. So now he's going about when he, in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is, this is the burden. I believe that this moment is the epic, pivotal point of what Jesus came to do. This is where it clicked. We all see multitudes. We see groups of people. Um, you can go toward the countryside in any nation that is very populous, India, China, different places. You see people everywhere, and you may marvel at that, but Jesus saw a layer deeper than that. He saw the broken heart of me. He saw with compassion. That particular Greek word means that his insides churned deeply and caused him pains. That, that word related to spleen. And inside it wrenched him. And he was moved. In fact, in Matthew, only five times that Greek word appears. And every time it does, something miraculous follows it. But this first mention of that word, his response is that he wants to do something because a burden is coming upon him. And the burden is the lost souls of this planet. This is the moment that the heart of Jesus was broken like the Father's heart had already been broken. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He did something about it. What did He do? He sent His own Son, Jesus. Jesus is just on mission until this moment. This was the turnaround. When He saw and it clicked and He realized something has to be done. As His heart was broken, then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And down in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal all or every disease and sickness. And these 12 Jesus sent out. This is also, by the way, I didn't include the verse. It's the first place that the word apostelos is appearing in the Greek that is the apostles. And this is after nine chapters of activity with Jesus, but they had only been mathetes up to this point in the Greek, which is disciples, students. They were just learning, watching, learning, watching. But it's like Jesus had not quite gotten the lesson plan of the training for church equipping. Because it had to be something he worked out. It's like if you went out anywhere and you were a problem solver in any job, if you were a consultant, you first have to go look at that factory and see why their machinery is not working right. For you to what? Come up with a solution to their problem. Because every problem is unique. Here, he's come up with a solution. His romance with the people of earth is the conception of the church. That it was his compassion that moved him to know that we have to do something about this. And that the disciples have to do something. And it's interesting because he kind of um, relegates them into this position as, a, as apostles without them really knowing. It's, I always think it's kind of funny that he said, you know, he feels it. And he's, and he's broken hearted for the people. And then he says to his disciples, 
that he mentions the problem. The harvest is massive. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are so few. There's not enough laborers to go into the harvest. And the problem is that because there's no shepherds, there's nobody to teach these people. There's nobody to keep protective watch over them. What does a shepherd do to sheep? He corrals them into a space. He keeps them safe. He keeps the wolves away. He keeps the bears away. He protects them. He chases off the lion. Think of David who was delivered out of the paw of both the lion and the bear. In what service? In the service of the shepherd to protect the sheep. When someone is willing, there's not enough people willing to lay their life down for these sheep. But yet it's the very proof of our love of Jesus because he said it to Peter. Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, you know I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. That the burden that Jesus received was so heavy in this moment. He knew that he was singular. He knew that he would be only one. At that moment, he was not omnipresent. He was present in one single place. He knew that he would have to somehow get people to represent him and do what he did. In fact, on into chapter 10, that's where he did what? He gave them power over um, the spirits. In fact, my whole program on the mission of the disciple is that 10th chapter. We break it down into seven sections that teach what ministry really is. As it was just coming out, his plan folded out of, it just came out of his mouth as God on earth, as man, spoke what would happen. You will go do this. You will preach. You will teach. You will lay hands on the sick. And as he spoke this, he gave them the power for them to travel on those first test tribes, test runs, if you would, into those regions whereby they had great success because the Spirit of the Lord was on them powerfully. They came back. Even the devils are subject to us. And he said, don't rejoice that demons are subject to you, but that your names are written in eternity. He read, they got a little excited about the wrong things. But it, it was a learning curve. Because for them to become Jesus, that's not an easy thing. How many of you have been trying to become Jesus for many years now? And you know we don't have that thing licked yet, right? I like what Paul said. I don't say this as, if, as one who has, has obtained it. But I, I'm trying. He says, it's one thing I do. I forget the things that are behind. I press toward the, the mark of the high call, moving forward. I'm stretching myself. So we're all trying, but we are not yet Jesus. And the disciples were not yet Jesus, but Jesus was so patient in training them, preparing them, redirecting their lives now in a way that went deeper because they received the mission of Christ, the burden of Christ. I did not really receive this burden until a missionary like me stood in our church when I was 17 years old and spoke about the needs, spoke about the people and all the ones that were going to hell. When he did, I, I, I had sleepless nights of tears when that burden came upon me. And so it is the mission of Jesus and he can't do it alone. He calls it his yoke. He calls it his cross. He calls it different things. When he calls it his cross, he says, unless you take up that cross, you cannot be my disciple. So we know that it is his plan and his desire that the burden that the Father gave Jesus for the people of the earth would come to us. So at first, the Father loved the world. And he sent his Son, and later while on earth, I believe that the Son learned and experienced the plight of the people decided, I must commission them. Luke 9.23 says, Then he said, 
to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And Jesus later teaches that if we do not take it up, well, we can't really be his disciples. So that burden is now our burden. If we're willing to receive it. If we're willing to take it. We, we can do this in many different ways. This does not mean that an individual immediately just sells everything and marches off to India. We're not going to airdrop you into Syria right now so that you could. I mean, if you told me you wanted to do that, I wouldn't stop you. Amen. I'd be like, okay, I'll help you pay for the ticket. I have sent a lot of people out there when they come. But I'm, I think there's so many people not willing to go that the few who are willing to go, I'm not going to do anything to douse the burning flames that are coming up in you. I'm going to work with it. I'm going to say yes, even if your plan is crazy, even if it sounds unbalanced and slightly insane, I'm still going to give you an amen. But first, let me help you out a little bit, just like Jesus did. In essence, you can say those first trips that the disciples made, trying out that they were like missions trips. They weren't a full commitment to becoming a missionary yet. They were just in training, learning, and finding out. But that's when they started moving into the apostolic work. And that's that first, second stage we see. Then we go to number three. Hearing the voice of God. This is the revelation of Jesus. It says, Matthew 16, 13, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church first mention of the word ecclesia in the Bible. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So this is interesting. It says he was going to give him the keys. It does not mean at that very moment while he's talking to him, you are Peter and here's the key. No, it says future tense, I will give you the keys. Because in actuality, he didn't yet have the keys that they needed. Because remember, he if, if he ascended, he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth where he won a victory over death and he took the keys of hell and death. And that's what he's talking about because Ephesians 4 speaks of it that in that power, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So the keys, in my opinion, that he gave are the first one on the list. He gave some to be apostles. Prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. These are people uniquely empowered by God with administrative giftings to do what? To go out there and remedy the problem he identified in the ninth chapter of Matthew. That they're like sheep without a shepherd. Well, there's a team of people who are the laborers in the harvest that can make this happen. The first one is the apostle. Because the apostle, it says that the church is laid on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostle is the one that's sent first, lays the foundation, and then people build upon that foundation. I spent seven years of my life in the city of Acapulco in Mexico after three and a half years in the north training. And in, in, while I was in that place, I laid a foundation. 
And when I left India, others came and built upon that foundation. That foundation, thank God, still stands to this day. The church has grown, multiplied, multiple even Bible schools they produced. But it started with a foundation. Starting with an idea. It started with a seed. And that's the thing about church planting. It comes from a seed. And that seed is the same seed that comes to us for salvation that can only come from the Father. The Father is the one that gives out the anointings. The Father is the one that empowers Jesus to grant that the Holy Spirit, courier, carrier, the flow from heaven that brings you the power. I see the gifts come upon people in worship, in prayer, then by the laying on of hands. Anything I have I can share by the laying on of hands. I've seen people come under those calls and those powers, those keys, if you would. And that's exactly what's going on with Peter. We see Peter truly here for the first time understanding Jesus when he recognized the reality of who he was. And this came from the Father according to this past. No man could have revealed it to him. Nobody, not flesh and blood it says. He had to hear the voice of God for himself. And that's why I say number three is hearing the voice of God. Hearing the voice of Jesus requires that we, we wonder, we think and question enough to be seen as worthy recipients of that voice. If you are not interested enough to go check out the burning bush, you will never hear the voice. It says, because he went over and saw the burning bush, God spoke to him. Because he wondered, why isn't this bush burning up? And I see that principle in everyone that ever moves into the apostolic or moves into church plan and really doing the work under the burden of Jesus. They have to be interested enough to be wondering, to be thinking. And that's what Jesus was stirring by asking the question first, who do people say that I am? That was giving them a chance to formulate their thoughts before he asked them directly. But then he went direct to them. And Peter knew the truth. And so this is the way we learn and we grow in hearing the voice of God. And the first thing we saw was that we meet Jesus, then we receive that burden comes upon us, and in connection with that is number three, to really know who Jesus is. I mean, how many of you got saved, but you had no idea? You couldn't have given me the theology of Christ. You just knew that he was Savior. And that's how we all first meet him. He's the guy that saved you from drowning. He's the guy that pushed you out from in front of the bus that was about to run you over. He's the one, that, the hero that rescued you. A hero can rescue you and you will be extremely grateful for that person saving your life and you don't even know his name. You don't know anything about him. And it's like that when we first meet Jesus. We just thank God. But later the Father begins to reveal the deeper thoughts of who he is and why he is. And then you get his divine identity. And you realize, wow, how magnificent he is, how wonderful he is. And when that happens, then his voice begins to flow. Then you start hearing him for who he is. And it's progress that we go through. Number four, then we are trained and sent, Matthew 10, 16 through 20. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On that account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
So here we see under this fourth point that being trained in sin, that part of that training is learning how to yield to the Holy Spirit so that instead of <laughs> your words coming out of your mouth, the Spirit can speak through you. See, the disciples after, by the time you get to the 13th chapter of Acts, the disciples were so proficient at just being channels to which the Spirit spoke. It says, and the Holy Spirit spoke, and it doesn't even say who it came through. Does it, does it really matter? No. They just became channels. It just let the Holy Spirit speak through them. It will come through individuals who have a relationship who have been revealed or it's been revealed to them by the Father who the Christ is. And he's teaching them here, look, you don't worry about it. I'm sending you out there. But because I am apostello in you and you are now a sent one and you go out there, don't worry. You're not by yourself. You have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will take, when you get in a jam and you don't know what to say, don't worry about it. The Holy just yield, just yield to the Holy Spirit and let it come through you. So many times I find myself in different nations, in different places, and I'm expected to teach on a certain theme or say a certain thing. And to be totally honest, I really don't know what to say. Sometimes I'm just lost. Uh, and, and you can tell they're all hungry and expecting that the man of God is going to teach them the right thing and I'm, I see my notes and it's like suddenly I am dyslexic and, I, and it's, I, don't, I don't know what to do and there's this flop sweat starts to build up on my scalp and I feel nervous, don't know what to do and I just kind of stop. It happened to me for a second in my time when I was just there this last time and I think you saw the moment, right? When he came and came. <laughs> ho! Ho! Ah, I'm just remembering. Because you're feeling like you're just left in the rain, waiting, and you 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 know the pleasantries of preachism, so you can Hallelujah, praise the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, you just pontificate and speak, and but because really you're just kind of killing time until he shows up. And right in that moment when I was a little lost, suddenly the Parakletos was at my side, the Holy Spirit, the Counselor. And I, it just felt so good. It was like it was like a hot shower, you know, when you're cold and chilly and you wake up. And these days, this is rare in Singapore, so I actually enjoyed my hot shower this morning. It made me moan. Oh. Hot. And that's what it felt like. The Holy Spirit came. And suddenly, this message I'm teaching with you right now is what came out. It just came out. It started tumbling out of my mouth. Just this, this perfect picture of what the Lord wanted to say. And that's why I wanted to share with you. But Jesus taught them. He teaches his disciples. And this took place over three and a half years that he was physically with them. And part of that training was involved in teaching them how to yield to the voice of God, not just to them, but through them. If he speaks to you, he can speak through you. And if you let him speak through you, he will speak more to you. That's how it works. Do you want the anointing? You need to learn how to give the anointing. Because if he gives it to you and you multiply it, he gives you more. And if you have more than everyone else, well, you get even more. The one has most, more will be given. The most anointed people will become more anointed because God sees that they are a channel through which he can trust. Those heavenly revelations will flow. And so that's what he's telling. Just yield, just yield to the Holy Spirit. When they were ready, Jesus would release them with only his spirit to guide them. At this point, they got Jesus physically there. I think this was probably one of their biggest obstacles. I 
can you preach in front of Jesus? I mean, seriously. <laughs> Peter, what do you think? Uh, uh, I don't, last time I spoke, you called me Satan, so I don't want to say anything. <laughs> just, just wait until you leave, and then I'll talk. When they went out on their own, they did great. I know this for a fact because I teach Bible school students, and they sit in the program... And um, if I'm where they are preaching, they just keep looking at me, isn't it? right? Right? Is that okay? Is that okay? Is it okay? I said that. Is that okay? Is it... I feel so bad for them. So I'm sure it was like that. You need to just be when you're by yourself, though. Wow, because I've heard recordings in my absence of people that I thought, is this the person that was in my school? Wow, because they felt the freedom, and that's what Jesus meant when he empowered them. He trained them so that when they would stand there. But it's quite a different Peter that stood up under the power of the Holy Spirit and quoted Joel and preached the very first message preached in the church. Because the church did not remember the church's concept all this time. He said, I will build on this rock of revelation of him as Messiah. I will build the church one day. But the church did not exist yet. The church had yet to be born. The church was born when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And then he breathed. And I like the analogy that I always share. is that in the beginning, God created man. He took the dirt of the ground, the dust of the earth, and he basically made a human sandcastle that looked like him. The same shape. He put that material together, but it was not a living being. It was a facsimile of his shape. Until when? Until he breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. And Adam became a living being. See, the whole time that Jesus was on earth, he came up with the plan when he saw and felt, and his romance drove him to come up with a structure. He did so. He called it the church the first time when he fought, saw that somebody's lights finally turned on. Then he knew, okay, see, that's what I'm waiting for. That's where the church would go on that intimacy of revelation from the Father. And so therefore, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he had the concept, he put it together, he continued training them, teaching them principle after principle, all these patterns, all these things. He formed the whole man, if you would, of the church, the body of Christ, until it needed a mighty rushing wind, the breath of the Father. Remember, Holy Spirit is holy pneuma, the word is breath, the holy breath breathed into the nostrils of the church. Before we can do something for Jesus, we must learn to yield to the influences of the Holy Spirit. Uh, before being sent to start the church, the disciples were trained and instructed carefully. They were given opportunities to try it out, but really, the full power came in the second chapter of Acts. Acts 14.21, we're going to see number five, planting a new movement. Uh, recently, have this, this word movement keeps coming back to me. I define church. Unfortunately, the word church carries a lot of stigmas. Uh, it limits a lot of people. Uh, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. In fact, if you wanted to transliterate the Greek, we could call it outcalled groups. You call it whatever you want. It, it, you know, church is an invented word in, in Romanized English. They took together to just try to express what means ecclesia called out. But I like the word movement because a long time ago the Lord told me that out the, a move of God has three main ingredients. He said a people, place, and a time. And you have a people, a place, and a specific time with consistency, and that's a church. And in more simplified formula is where it says two or three gathered. 
So a lot of people say, well, no, according to our denomination, a church is only officially a church when it has 99 people. No, that is not biblical. Because there, there's group, there's a 12-member group mentioned in the book of Acts that gets its own space in the posterity of the history of the church. Written there. It's beautiful. 12 people. I, I think he put that in there just to remind us that we're not in the book of Numbers. We're in the book of Acts. <laughs> no matter how small the group, it's a church, two or more. And if you find somebody that wants to hear about Jesus and you meet him at Starbucks and share an espresso and tell them about Jesus and say, hey, you want to do this next week? And they say, yes, you just planted a church. And you go back that next week and you speak to that person again. And that may go on for a few weeks, but two or more. You don't need more yet. You're already in church if you're consistent. And that's the thing. You've got to stay consistent. And then before you know it, they bring a friend. Now you're three. And then they bring a friend. I always tell the story about the church I planted in Mexico when I went to the south. And I was in my house and my neighbor came and knocked on the door. I'd never met her before. But she, I had been praying and interceding and asked God to shake the hearts of the people to make them know that they need God. And that following day, this little lady knocked on my door and said, can I talk to you? And she was shaking. And like shivering. And I said, yes, what's wrong? I hadn't spoken to her other than good morning, good night. That's it. And she said, something's happening to me. And she said, all night, since yesterday. I said, what? She said, her words, something's shaking me. And I know I need God. Amazing how powerful intercession can be in church. Body. Now, as she was shaking, she said, can you help me? Now, of course... You know, I've worked in a lot of church work, done a lot of things, so my first response was the mouth again. Like, I couldn't believe this was, at my, my prayer was actually, literally, exactly answered. And I said, certainly, come in. And she prayed to receive Jesus. And immediately, I took out the book of John. And I began to tell her about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And I said, see this, down in verse 14, the word became flesh. This is Jesus, his origins. He came down from heaven as a, as a gift from the Father to save the world because of the Father's love for us all. He gave his son. She believed it in time. She prayed to receive Jesus as her Savior. Radically changed. The shaking went away. Now she just had joy. She kept on saying, I just feel so happy. I just feel so happy. And she left and came back on the next day. And there was a rude knock on my door. Opened it up, and it was her um, her sister-in-law that came with her behind her, looking like, uh-oh. And uh, she said, what did you do to my sister-in-law? And I said, what do you mean? She said, she's just flipping out. She's like, something's weird. What did you do to her? And I said, well, come inside. I'll tell you about her. And when that young woman, the name's Katya. I just saw a picture on Facebook the other day. I wrote I said, she's always beautiful. She's a beautiful girl. She came in, when she came in the house, immediately she started shaking and tears came out of her eyes. The Spirit of the Lord was on And I said, I will, this is, first of all, I didn't do anything to your sister-in-law. What you feel is what did it to her. And I want you to meet him. His name is Jesus. And he's here in the form of the Holy Spirit. She got saved. And I went back to chapter 2 in John. We started, that was the second day. Third day, they come back and there's another angry mouth. And now it's the, the mother-in-law of the first girl, Marcy's mother-in-law, Hela, and she's angry. What did you do to my daughter and daughter-in-law? I 
They're acting weird. They can't stop crying. They, they're happy. And what's going on? Are you brainwashing them? I said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. Come in. Let me explain. She walked in. Immediately, the power of God fell. And she started crying. And she came and gave her heart to Jesus. And on a short time, by then, we were talking about Nicodemus because we were in chapter 3. And now we were two or three gathered in his name. And we were meeting daily. The Bible says they met house to house daily. That's the first church. Just those people, we did that. And then the neighbor came because she wanted to know why those three women are going to my house. What's that white man giving away? And she got saved. And then the opposite neighbor. Like that. And God just built the church beautifully. And we, I laid a foundation. But then I didn't know what to teach them. I didn't know what to, what do you tell these people? How, how do I do it? And the Lord immediately says, don't worry about it. I'll show you what to teach them. And that's how the core came to be our teaching man. It was born in the church being born. Because I needed a consistent teaching for them. And I knew already from the beginning they would need a consistent teaching to be the next generation of teachers. From the beginning I had the concept, just like Jesus did, of disciples. Just like that. They were his sheep, but then he turned them into shepherds. Immediately. And they had to have the mentality that their sheep would be shepherds. The discipleship mentor process. That's the church. And upon that movement, it says in Acts 14.21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Now, actually, the three steps of church planning are here. We're going to see very quickly in the end of our message. Four, five, um, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, five, six, and seven. Verse 21, it says they preached the gospel. That's where church planning starts. That's what I did with the neighbor. That's what I did anywhere when I went into India. That's what I do here in Singapore. I, start, I just share, what, the news of Jesus. In fact, the first lesson in the core is Jesus the Savior. And the question that starts it is, who is Jesus? Because that's the gospel. The good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We start there. That's what Paul and Barnabas and the other missionaries are doing here in the 14th chapter of Acts. They're going in and preaching to people in that city. And they want a large number of Disciples, very important word again, matitis. They want a large number of students. In fact, it's the same word in Bahasa for it's murid, which is the same for both. And the student now is a person, a student, if somebody comes to your house and visits and you have a conversation, they go away, you never see them again. Do you call them your student? No. Because a student requires discipline. Why? We use the English word disciple. Because they have to be systematically taught. And that means there was a large number of systematically taught people that were chronically coming. They were, or at least consistently coming, not chronically, but consistently coming day by day. And this group was growing. Just like it was when I was in Mexico, like it was when I was in India. So it all starts with the message of the cross being spoken to those lost people and seeing them receive and respond to that message. And this does not mean. Just the one-time prayer of salvation. Amen. In fact, I get tired of people glorifying themselves as some great evangelist because they said a prayer with somebody. That's not the work of the king. He said, go make disciples. Right. Amen. Go make disciples. You can't just, I know people that have little scorecards. And you know, I was trained that way as a young man in the 1980s. I was given a little scorecard in the Romans Road in the two-question test track, and I had a pocket full of chick tracks. With half of them were so offensive, I can't believe I even gave them out. But I had all this information. I did my best and found I had very little fruit from it. 
It was not, I was just glad, it wasn't about them, it was about me when in souls. And I would be so happy to go tell people about who got saved and this person got saved. And when you would see the people I said got saved, they sure didn't look saved, they looked confused. Like, what's he talking about? Because it really didn't matter to me. What got me the glory, the credit, and the accolades of my peers was that I had them say a prayer. And they even told me, look, no matter what they think, just make them say that prayer. That's all you need. That's what you're trained to do. Just make them say that prayer. If you make them say that prayer, it's all good. Everything's going to be okay. Well, you know, I worked as a, as a system, a network of um, associate pastors in Mumbai when Benny Hinn came in there. And they had thousands and thousands of people come through the Crusades. And we were on the team on the ground to follow up. And we did the best we could with hand phone numbers and gathered all that information. Uh, two years after that crusade was done upon, at that time, as far as saying a prayer, there were thousands of people that said a prayer. Thousands. And so two years later, we had a pastor's conference with all the pastors that were involved in all the churches that were going to be the network that caught and conserved the harvest. And the question was asked, how many of you gained members from the great Benny Hinn crusade that come? And no one not one soul and that broke my heart and I realized that I, I, that's not where it's at it's good uh, when I when I heard that and saw that I started as I was traveling from church to church I started to do kind of a survey in churches and ask them a question very simply three questions I would ask just random congregations in six different countries I asked this question how many of you got saved you met Jesus because a crusade or a big meeting that you went to and you gave your heart to the Lord. Um, out of six churches, six congregations in six different nations, of all, one person raised their hand. Just to tell you the truth. Now, the second question I asked was, how many of you got saved because of some type of propaganda or tract or some paper, something printed that you read and was handed to you or mailed to you, something physical like that? A Jesus fish, bumper sticker, anything. If that's what led you to Jesus, and in that, maybe in all those people, about two people raised their hand. Then I asked the third question. This is the important one. How many of you got saved because someone you personally knew was saved and took the time to talk to you about it? And 99 hands would go up. And I realized, gosh, we're wasting a lot of energy in the church. <laughs> We are wasting a lot. We, we need to build relationships. Amen. That's what a church is. There's a simple principle. Um, is, in fact, it's the Stockholm Syndrome. There's a syndrome when people are taken captive, they will bond with their captors, even though they are kidnapped. And we see this, the Patty Hearst story in history. We see these stories about people bonding with their kidnappers and actually would protect them even though they were kidnapped. Because this simple psychological principle of time with one equals the bond of friendship. And this is exactly what discipleship is. It's time. You cannot disciple someone without spending time with them. Extended time. Repeated time. Consistently. People place in a time. Consistently. That needs to be our focus at all times. So they start here by having these students come together. Number six, feeding the sheep. It says, and we're continuing in the same passage in Acts now, the second part of verse 21. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, which is where um, they were originally sent out from, 
strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. See, now this means basically getting them not to quit. And this is the big key of church planning. Basically, the church is a bunch of people. When they're disciples, they're in the honeymoon. Everything's happy. Everything's wonderful. Praise God, I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, and now I'm found. And they feel real good, but the challenges, the testing that are a must for us to really become disciples has not started yet. When it comes, it's the second stage, and everybody wants to quit. And that's where they had to say, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Please remain true to the faith. Why? Because many of them were no longer... I, I taught a message one time in the 90s that upset a lot of churches. Um, I, I often do that. But I went to the churches and I taught a message simply called the parable of the sower applied to the church. Because I reasoned that all of the members, the four different types of people that the seed fell with were there to receive the seed. The seed is the Word of God. So all of them were receiving the Word. In fact, the worst one, the one that the crows eat, it says they received the Word with gladness, eagerly. Amen, brother. Preach it, pastor. Praise God. These are the guys run up in the altar calls. Hallelujah. They're all excited. They're just like the disciples of Jesus. We will never leave you. We will stick with you through thick and thin. You know, yeah, yeah. By, by tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster even crows. Because that's the reality. So really, you're doing a disservice to teach anybody only positive messages that everything's going to be okay. Praise the Lord. You can just trust that everything's going to work out for your good. Well, that's not anyone you know, I'm just saying. That's not, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This was apparently the catchphrase of the early church. Because it's in quotations like as if it were printed somewhere. Strength and disciples encourage them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. It was something that was told off. Well, let me ask you a simple question. Remember that this is the disciples doing what Jesus taught them to do. There was a time that Jesus was teaching them. Did he ever warn them about hard times? All the time. Beware of this. Beware of that. Watch out for the doctrines of men. Watch out for the doctrines of the Pharisees. Watch out for this. By the way, they're going to deliver you up. They're going to do that. None of it. He never promised them a rose garden. He never promised them an easy street. He said his yoke is easy. His burden is light. But there was going to be a difficult road to walk on. And that is really what church planning is all about. I'm not excited about the people that come to the church in the first stages. We get all kinds of people. And I've noticed every church I've ever worked in has a revolving door. You ever been, you ever been through a revolving door? It's a big circuit door that turns. You go in and if you go keep going around, it'll bring you all the way back through. Last time I went to uh, New York and Manhattan, a lot of the older hotels have these big revolving I, I can't resist but going through the revolving door coming back out again. That's basically what I've seen in the church world these 30 years I've been in ministry. That people come, they're all excited and they will come to me, tears in their eyes, grabbing my hands going down, genuflecting to me so thank you, Pastor, this is the best service I've ever been this is amazing, the worship is incredible, the word, best message I ever heard 
I found my new home. Oh, this is my church. I believe that God, by divine appointment, has brought me here. And, and I seem a bit nonplussed because I'll say, Amen. Now, I don't mean to be cynical, but I've heard thousands of people tell me that. But I'll quote Catherine Coleman, one of my favorite people on the whole planet that's ever walked on this earth. Once they go out of that door, they will do exactly what they want to do. That's right. You can preach all you want. Uh, Catherine said it like this. You can have them come and sit, and you can have coffee with them and tell them about all the wonders of God. And you can just love them and spend the whole afternoon with them, and they will cry and they will rejoice. When they go out of that door, they will do exactly what they want to do. My beloved, I have seen through the... And she goes on. I, I mean, I got all of her sermons almost memorized. She goes on to talk about how many... Same thing. So I'm not surprised that it happens. But in the meantime, this is what we need to tell them. Remain true to the faith. There's no way... I can't tell you you're not going to go through trouble. Because when you do go through trouble, and I'll, all I've ever told you are glory stories about the wonders of the great happiness of God's kingdom, you're going to come back and blame me. You're going to say, what you said wasn't true. So I'm going to tell you the truth. It's not easy. And the minute that you receive Jesus as your Savior, a target is painted on your back. And Satan and all of his demons are after you. And you need the church. You need the protection, the covering, the sanctity of the holy assembly of God. Forsake not the assembling of God of the church together. Because the days are evil, it says. And it's becoming worse as we move toward the end more than ever before. As men are becoming lovers of themselves, it's darker and darker and darker. You need the church, and that's where the sheep are fed. If not, you will spiritually starve. The seventh and final one, we're going to end here, and then we're going to pray. Number seven, training the future leaders. Verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, because they had a, a number of churches since they first left um, Syrian Antioch. Back in the 13th chapter, remember the beginning of the 13th chapter, separate for me, Paul and Barnabas, and do the work of called them to do, and it says they laid hands on them and sent them out. It's throughout chapter 13, and here, 23 verses all the way through 14. Remember, the book of Acts is not just like a little movie. It's spread over a pretty long period of time. So sometimes there is a year between a verse. It stretches out. So all this time, they're planting churches, and then they're going back through the circuit, and, and teaching them and saying, look, don't quit, don't quit. Hang in there, hang in there. It's rough, I know, and that's why Paul's praise in the letters to them was because they didn't quit. It said to them, you hung in there, even at the worst, you, you endured the persecution, and God has a reward for you in heaven. So here they, they're appointed, the elders in those churches, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through... Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they started, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. This is pictured in, in three verses, 21, 22, and 23, you see the whole model of church planting. Preach the disciples, that is, you get people to become students. You strengthen and encourage them in the second stage, feeding them, making them strong, Having them work out, develop their, their spiritual muscles so that they can stand. Teach them the word of God. Teach them the armor of God. 
that they will be able to stand against the evil that's coming and tell them only through much tribulation. And that, you cannot do that without some type of systematic theology. You need consistent teachings, consistent teachings. I always talk about the 10,000 hour law. How many of you ever heard that principle? You can master anything if you can do it for 10,000 hours. That's a long time, right? But you know what's interesting? I'll give you an idea. If you want to learn guitar and be a master at it, but you only have an hour a day, well, that's 27 years. 27 years of playing the guitar for an hour a day, and you can be a master at it. That's a long time. However, if you did it eight hours a day, every day, take you about three and a half years. That name ring a bell? How often do you think Jesus was teaching his disciples? I'm thinking at least eight hours a day. Constantly. He was the Word made flesh. He couldn't help but speak the Word. He was the Word. Teaching the principles. Teaching the principles. That's why after three and a half years of teaching them and putting those things in them, they were able to go. And he even told them, don't worry, I know you don't remember everything I told you, but when He, the Comforter, comes, He will remind you of everything I've taught you. Everything I've put in you, everything I've deposited, He'll bring it back to life. Don't worry about it. When it's time, it will not only come back to mind, but it will come tumbling out of your mouth as well. That's the gift that He gives to the church, the Holy Spirit. So this is our mandate and mission. We have been here long enough learning and growing. You know, we're learning, we're growing, we see so many things, but if we do not move forward, we will die. If you don't move forward, all the time we need to grow. All the time. If you've been feeling like, you know what, I just need... Like somebody, like my own little group. That's God. God's speaking to your heart. God's trying to get you to plant a church. I don't believe in a mega church environment. I believe in multiplying a church. I don't want a church with thousands of people. Who wants that headache to begin with? I see pastors that have any anything more than 300, 400 members, and I have pity on them. That, that's, that's a miserable task. Just give me 25 people. Give me 30 people. And then even 30, that's getting to be a bit much. I'd rather that there be a subgroup under you and you take care of those. And we, there's a, we can all be shepherds. Amen? We can all do the apostolic work. We can all receive the burden of Christ. God is not doing anything else on the planet other than church planning. And if you're not involved in that, then you're not involved in God's business. Amen. Now, if you yourself are not an apostle, that just, that's okay. The apostle lays the foundation... But he's kind of a jack of all trades and master of none. He needs specialists to come in that have the anointing of pastor and prophet and teacher. They build, the apostle just gets it started. That's, I'm a fire starter. That's what I do. Start things, but you're going to need to rise into your callings and build on that. And I'm always looking to get my way out of that job and allow it to grow. It is amazing in testimony of that little group in Batam, Indonesia, of only five people. And they decided, we're just going to do a Bible study. This is 2000, um, 2005 when I went there. We're just going to do a Bible study. And I said to them, well, that's not biblical. They said, what do you mean? I said that their church, it's only church. There's nothing else in the Bible but church. So you need to plan a church. So they started saying, well, we, we really don't have the stuff to plan a church. I said, well, what do you need? Well, we don't have a keyboard. We don't have a microphone. We don't have microphone stands. We don't have speakers. Now, my first thought was, you don't need that. Jesus didn't have any of those things. But then I thought, okay, that's what they need. I said, all right, let's go get them. 
And I literally, we went out together and I bought them a keyboard, microphone stand, microphone, speakers, everything I had to supply them with that. I gave it to him. I said, now you have it. So uh, what doth hinder you from starting a church now? And they had no excuse. I said, yeah, we might as well do it. And they did it in their first service with seven of them with that keyboard and those things. And they sang and invited some neighbors, which did not come for a few weeks, but then they started coming. Uh, the last visit this, this trip, she was testifying about that. And she said, now we have 800 members in the church. And this is 2017. With 800 members, she's feeding somewhere around how many thousands of children? Five, like 5,000 children in slums that they are consistently, weekly reaching out to and feeding. They've planted five or six other churches already. The Bible school is training 30 to 50 students at a time in waves of three years all going out there. And that's why I'm so excited that, and you see the connection now with me and why the core makes sense. We're going to work to equip them with that. Because that's what God is doing on the earth. Amen. These are the seven stages to fulfilling the apostolic. Uh, meeting Jesus, it all starts with that when we meet him. Um, we see him for all of his glory and his wonders. His great love is lavished upon us. In fact, he's the manifestation of the Father's love. For God so loved us, he was sent. But then we, after we meet him and get to know him, we will find out that he is burdened with something. He calls it his yoke. And he wants to share it with you. He calls it his cross that he has to bear. And he insists that you share it. And that was his romance with the earth, compassion and concern. What do we do? They're like sheep without a shepherd. And so therefore, there's not enough laborers. We need to send laborers. We need to get people ready for that task. We need to raise them for that. I have, I have curriculum already. I have everything I need to do that. If you brought me a thousand students tonight and said, train these people to go to the nation, within, within a few months, I could have them ready to go into the nations and plant churches. I'm ready for it. I'm ready. Just bring me people. Remember, you're coming up in June. It's coming again, the core. We're going to do June, July, and August. That's six hours a day, four days a week for three months. Training, teaching. We're going to go to different countries. Four or five different countries we usually go to during that time where we'll all be involved. And I'm excited. We already have a student coming in from Germany uh, this year already enrolled. And we have other students coming. Usually we have a number of nations all together. So um, some of you, I think, if you've never been in the program, this is your chance to come to it. And we usually do it in a nighttime format so people can come. We usually start like past 5 o'clock or about 5 we'll start the worship. You could catch it even in the nights. The people who do come, usually they lay everything down to do it. So they, if they have jobs, they quit those jobs. They just come and do only that. That's the best way to do it. So I'm ready to do that because I've received the mission of Christ. We hear the voice of God. The Father gives you that revelation. Being trained and sent, that's what we do, that's what we want to do. It's not a mistake that we named this church Antioch. We knew exactly what we were doing. Planting a new movement. I want to see that happen in all the nations. Just today I was thinking, how can I do this more consistently, more regularly? I'm coming up with a plan that will put me out in a different, at least four to five countries each month I will be active in where all of them will be churches planted that I will at least preach in once a month, and some of you will be there full time. And you'll preach three times a month on those opposite times, and I will come in and preach the one service. Now you're looking at me like you're frightened. Just listen to the Lord feeding the sheep. We're going to feed the sheep. 
Uh, number seven, training the future leaders. And that's really the seven stages of fulfilling the apostolic because they preached Jesus, then they told them, strengthened them, and encouraged them, and then they appointed elders. Well, elders are going to have to be put in that place. The leaders, the pastors, are going to have to come to the top, and that you can do that. You can be a church planner. Because no, people say, no, it's only a very special call. I really can't do that. No, it's not. Anybody can do it. Amen. In the Bible, there are women apostles. Uh, so don't say, well, I'm, I'm a woman. No, I see all equal. Uh, when I read the book of Joel, it says he pours his spirit out on all flesh, not just strong men. Amen. All flesh. All flesh. Sons and daughters. So the demographic of age doesn't matter either. It can be a child. I knew my, one of my mentors, Ruth Ann Martinez, at the age of 12, was traveling through a dozen villages on the back of an ox cart to pastor her churches that she had planned. An amazing woman of God. She was third generation. Her great-grandfather was a missionary to the Alaskan indigenous people. Her um, father was a missionary to Mexico. And um, her grandfather was the one that came into other countries out of that region. They just multiple generations. We had her grandchildren come to the program. Two of them have trained here. Great people. And at the age of 12, she had already planted a dozen churches and would travel on that ox cart from village to village, preaching every week she'd make her circle, make her circle back through. Those churches are still there to this day. Amen? God is so good. Anybody can do it. They just need to connect to the burden of Christ, the empowerment of Christ, and understand these principles. Amen. Thank you for listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. If you would like to support our efforts, please consider making a donation at www.antiochchurch.sg. Thank you.